The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. You know, there are some people you just want to bet on. Founders you believe in, writers who can get you to publish their books, politicians who inspire others with their ideas. And this it factor, well, it's an important quality for success. And yet it can be really hard to distill. It's not charisma exactly. It's not excellence entirely. It's something more. My friend Sunil Gupta has been studying this it factor, and he just published a new book on the subject. It's called Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Sunil's got a lot of firsthand experience in this. He's helped build tech businesses. He started and sold a company, Rise. He's run for Congress. And in the process, he's learned a lot about what inspires you to get behind a person and an idea. So I've asked him to share his formula with us. Here's Sunil. I I got to this topic really out of necessity. I was out there pitching an idea for a company. I got rejected by every investor that I, I pitched. And it started to kind of spark this question, which is, you know, how do you get really good at that? And and as I as I started to kind of just take a deeper look, what I realized is that there are people who seem to have this it quality that allows them to shine in key moments. These could be pitches, these could be interviews, auditions. And the trick of it is that even sometimes when they're not the obvious choice, we still feel compelled to want to take a chance on them. So, you know, Jeff Bezos, when he was first pitching Amazon, just as an example, you know, he didn't have an entrepreneurial track record. Just just as when a district attorney took a chance on Kamala Harris, she didn't really have a prosecutorial track record. The, the list goes on and on. And I, I guess yeah, I just wanted to understand, like, could that it quality be learned? You know, even if you're not a celebrity or a CEO? I know that quality you're talking about. It's that quality that somebody embodies that you can't always name. You you simply believe in them right from the start. It sometimes happens yeah. even before they speak, right? It's sometimes it's a reaction to the energy that they bring to a room. Yes. And and that is not necessarily charisma. I'm not saying that charismatic people inspire that in people. It's, it's something deeper. It's, a jeu. It's, it's it's nameless unless you, Sunil, try to name it and explain it for us. <laughs> well, you know, you're absolutely right. It's not charisma. I thought it might be. And in the beginning, um, you know, I started to look for communication styles that were backable. Were they using a certain type of communication style, hand gestures, eye contact, uh, ways that they use pacing. But I found that just to not be the case. I don't think that it's charisma that makes a person convincing. I think it's conviction. Hmm. Backable people take the time to convince themselves before they go out and try to convince other people. You know, I mean, just take take an example that that you know that's that's out there right now. You can just look up the most popular TED Talk of all time. Um, and what you'll find is a very un-TED-like presentation. You'll, you'll see Ken Robinson up on stage talking about education. It's a brilliant talk, but it's very un-TED-like. 
He's got a hand in his pocket. He's sort of slouching. Um, he's a little bit kind of meandering on and off script, but it's incredibly powerful. And again, I think the thing that binds backable people together isn't this idea that they have a certain communication style. I think that they just take the time to really convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through whatever style it is that feels most natural. That idea that you have to start by convincing yourself that you are your own most critical audience is so key. I want to take a step before we really dive in to what you yeah. have learned to talk about your own career for a second and your life. Sure. Sure. So, so that company that you were endeavoring to start, where were you in your life at that point? What happened with it? Sure. Yeah. I came to an unusual point when I was in graduate school. I was in law school. I did a joint law business program at Northwestern. And that's where I met my, my now wife, Lena, Lena Rao. And, uh, and she and I were, were, were planning on moving to New York. I'd received an offer from a law firm that was just way more money than I ever really kind of expected I would ever make in my life. And I was, I was inclined to take it. Lena had a, had a job out there as well as a journalist, a uh, job offer. And we were leaning in that direction. And in the last sort of moments before I signed that offer, the days before, I had, you know, what could only be, I think, considered a panic attack of like, I'm moving myself in a direction that I just don't want to move in. Like, I, I don't really see myself being a New York corporate lawyer. There's nothing wrong with that career if that's, if that's, what, if that's what makes you tick. But I kind of just knew that that wasn't what made me tick. And I think that experience, it's worth just punctuating because I think it's a familiar experience. A lot of people who are directionless at the beginning of their careers because, hey, it's the beginning of their careers, do the next thing that the outside world seems to suggest is the right thing to do and then the next thing and then the next thing and then suddenly realize they're about to wake up in a life that doesn't feel like it is of their own design. Yeah, yeah. There's this sort of, um, I think, linear progression that I think becomes tempting to take where like, if you're going to break that path, if you're not going to use what it is that you've sort of accumulated to this point in time, the skills, the experience, the degrees, it becomes even harder. You know, in Eastern philosophy, there's this, this metaphor of the life raft. You've taken this life raft to cross a very choppy river, and you've finally gotten to the other side. And now the question is, do you take that life raft and do you lift it over your head and carry it for the rest of your journey? And the answer is probably no. I mean, it's, it's a heavy raft and you don't need it anymore. So you, you let it down. But, you know, what I have found is that in you know, that life raft can represent a lot of things. It can, it can represent abusive relationships. It can, it can represent a lot of pain. But it can also represent positive things. You know, in my case, it represented a law degree. I have this law degree now. I've, I've passed the bar. And, you know, it, do I now want to carry that even though I know that that's not the direction I want to take my career? And so I had a great partner already in Lena who said, look, if this isn't what you want to do, like, let's go figure something else out. And so I kind of just scrambled in the final days of grad school. I started taking trips out to Silicon Valley and I started knocking on doors. I mean, it was it's the best way to describe it because I really didn't know anybody um, out there. And eventually I found my way to an introduction to, to Reed Hoffman. And, um, and it happened through, you know, many, many different sort of nodes, but finally got there. Reed was 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 really really kind. I mean, he didn't know me from from Adam, and there were a lot of people out there who were who were looking for Reed's time. But he he somehow just said, "Look, you know, if this is what you want to do, let's let's start introducing you to people." 
And he eventually introduced me to John Lilly, who was at that time going to become the CEO of Mozilla. And John asked me to come work with him. And it was the biggest break that I've ever gotten in my career. I mean, I, I, I really feel like they, they saved me psychologically from something that I just, I, I think I wouldn't have enjoyed doing and instead put me on this path of, you know, work that I really enjoyed. So they put you on that tech path. And I should say, uh, people don't do that for just anyone. So my guess is that they could see a thing inside you that was backable. We will come back to that. Take me quickly through the next big beats. Sure. So after working at a couple of tech companies, Mozilla and then Groupon, I went out and started my own company and it was a company called Rise. And Rise was a one-on-one nutrition coaching service. So you get you get matched with a personal nutritionist right over your mobile phone. You know, telemedicine was, was relatively early at that point. We're talking about 2012. So we felt like we were breaking some new ground with our approach. We ended up going at that for three years and then selling the company to One Medical. I stayed at One Medical for a while and and then found myself working at a venture capital firm. I was working at Kleiner Perkins as an entrepreneur in residence. Um, and Jesse, if you would have asked me when I first came out to Silicon Valley, like, hey, like, what do you want to do? Where, where, does this, where does this all lead? I probably would have told you, I want to go work at a venture capital firm like Kleiner Perkins. But then I was there and the 2016 election happens our country changes, Donald Trump is elected president, and all I can think about is what is happening in this country right now? What, 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 do we, what do we need to change in order to put ourselves on a different path? And I realized that I was living in San Francisco and I felt completely disconnected to what was happening back at home. My hometown is yeah, right outside of Detroit, Michigan. It's one of the congressional districts that flipped from blue to red in 2016. I had a lot of friends who voted for Donald Trump and I wanted to understand like why, what, what, what was really happening. So I started to take trips back to Michigan and, and, and really started to kind of throw myself into what was happening you know, on the ground. And eventually I came to the realization that I wanted to move back to Michigan and I wanted to run for office, which was certainly not an idea that my wife wanted to hear. That was the next big backable moment for me. You might remember Sunil's wife, Lena Rao. Last summer, she came on our episode about leaving big cities. I'll add it to the show notes for this episode, and you can hear her tell this story. Anyway, here's how Sunil sees it. There's a study that came out a few years ago called the IKEA effect, which basically tells us that we value something that we build up to five times more than something that we simply buy. And the reason that matters for, for this part of the story is that, you know, I went to Lena and I said, look, I want to move to Michigan. And I want to run for Congress. And she said, absolutely not. I, I don't want to move to Michigan. I, I like it here. You know, I like it here in the Bay Area. And so we continued to have this back and forth over and over again. And I realized that what I was really trying to do was I was trying to sell her a piece of furniture. And, you know, there wasn't something that we were building together. And so eventually where we landed, Jesse, is that we said, look, if we move to Michigan and I win my election, then, then obviously we'll stay. But if I lose, then you get the next call no matter what. We can move back here. We can move to the East Coast where you have family. You get the next call no matter what. That, that's your decision entirely. And while I, it didn't make 
you know, her moving to Michigan, perfect. It wasn't a perfect plan. At least we felt like we were building something together. I really like that story, Sunil, um, because I think that it applies to people in in their personal lives and in their professional lives. Yeah. When you are trying to do something with a team, whether that be your spouse or your colleagues, handing anybody a prepackaged idea is not the way to get them to buy into the idea. But coming to the table with a vision and a willingness to compromise is the way that you create something together. You don't want to walk into a room being the person who has all the answers right away. You want to walk into the room and share a high-level vision and share what it could be, but not exactly how it has to be. The best home run scenario is when you can go in and, and talk about a problem and really show that you're, you've fallen in love with the problem, but you haven't necessarily fallen in love with the solution. The solution is something that you can come up with together. Those tend to be these backable moments when people come together and you start to do what I call flipping outsiders into insiders. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about how to do that. People are always more likely to get behind your idea or get behind you if they feel like they have thought of it. Sharing, I think, and, and sharing just enough where they can now start to kind of brainstorm with you is such an important part of it. I mean, some of this has to do, I think, with ego. You know, yeah. do you want to be the person who came up with the idea? Are you willing to have other people feel ownership of it? Yeah. You know, it, one, one of the most interesting interviews that I did for the book was with the, with the president of the MacArthur Foundation, which runs the, the Genius Grant. And, you know, one of the things he told me that was surprising was that if you are a candidate for the Genius Grant, if you're somebody that they're considering, if you come in and it is already very clear that you are on a path to success with what you want to do, you are less likely to win this grant. Less mm -hmm. likely. What we are looking for is an opportunity to influence the direction of somebody's career. But for this grant, but for the support we're about to give, they wouldn't get to the point that they want to get to. And I think that's kind of how we all feel, right? I mean, as human beings, don't we want to know that we made a difference? Don't we want to know that we matter? Yeah. That's, I think, really at the core of what it means to be backable. Let's pause here. When we return, Sunil's got some ideas for how we can stand out. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. 
We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. My guest today is Sunil Gupta. He's got a host of strategies for how to make yourself more backable, including this one. One of the lessons from the book, and and it's one that I really try to remind myself of often, is to share an earned secret. Share an earned secret. And, And that is something that you have found yourself an insight through firsthand experience. Great ideas and great candidates usually come from great insights. And how you arrive on an idea sometimes can be as important and memorable as the idea itself. I'll never forget, I was in the, the waiting room of Brian Grazier, who's a Hollywood producer. He's won over 130 Emmys and you know dozens of Academy Awards. And I'm sitting there in this waiting room, and there are people waiting to pitch him on all these different things, on film ideas and television ideas, on technology companies, because he's an investor, uh, and to apply for jobs. So it was almost like this backable waiting room. And when I got back there to talk to Brian, I said, look, you got all these people out there waiting to pitch you. If I was to go out there and give them all one piece of advice, just one thing, what would it be? And he thinks about it for a moment and he looks at me and he says, give me something that I can't find on Google. (laughs) Give me something that is not Googleable. And I have found that to be a very common answer amongst decision makers people who have to select people, have to select ideas, is that they're looking for something that you have gone out there and you have found yourself. Doing something that's just non-obvious. I was talking to somebody who was applying for a job the other day at a social media company. And the challenge that she was having was that she didn't really use the product. It's a very sort of Gen Z kind of product and she just wasn't on it. But she really wanted the job. It was a very interesting role. And so what she did is she called up every single one of her daughter's friends. And she interviewed them. And not only did she interview them, when they brought something up of like, you know, I wish it had this, or there was this part of the experience. She's like, hey, could you screenshot that for me and just send it to me? So now she walks into this interview with this just gallery of screenshots that she's collected in the experience. And it was a level of domain expertise that the person who was interviewing hadn't seen from most people who interview for a job like that. And she got the job, um, but also... He ended up bringing in one of the UX designers, and he's like, "You got to take a look at this, you know." And it's it just—it's amazing how it's amazing how just going one step beyond not only leaves an impression, but I think it does something that we talk about in the book, which is intoxicating people with effort. It's a specific type of effort, and the thing that jumps out about that to me is that what you're displaying is is your creativity and problem solving. And that let's take the woman who got the job because she brought in screenshots to show that she understood something about the use case for um, the social network. It probably didn't matter whether her screenshots were directionally where the leaders in the company wanted to take the company. Probably what mattered is that they were able to see what she was willing to do to solve a problem. And there's a big difference between research which one should always do so that one goes prepared into any interview and displaying problem-solving ability, right? They're, they're actually totally different domains. Uh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, if people are trying to get a taste of what's going to be like to invest in you, what's going to be like to work with you. I think showing that is so much better than describing it because, yeah. of, because of this work, because of this effort that you, that you have done. One of my favorite stories in the book is just showed the effort was a guy named Jonathan Karp 
who's a book publisher. For 10 years, Jonathan Karp was trying to get Howard Stern to write a book. And Howard Stern kept saying, no, like I, I, I've already written a couple of bestsellers. It was a lot of work. I don't want to write a book. And so over and over again, Carp kept getting rejected. And eventually he's sitting in his office one day and he, he decides, look, I kind of already have all of the material out there that I would need for Howard Stern to write a book. Like he's done all these interviews. What if we went through and combed through the thousands of pages of transcripts and pulled out the best moments, did it ourselves? What would that look like? And so that's exactly what he did. He and a small team combed through all these transcripts, assembled it into a book. And then the next time he went and pitched Howard Stern on the idea of writing a book, he brought the actual book. <laughs> bound in a leather-bound cover saying, here it is. And now Howard Stern, I mean, the way Howard Stern describes the experience is pretty funny too, because he's like, again, like it's not like, you know, that changed sort of his opinion on like the work he would still have to do, like he still has to do a bunch of editorial work. But what he said is, I felt intoxicated with the effort that they put into this, that I just could not say no. Yeah. So how does this change based on who you are in society? Male, female, person of color, where you grew up, where you went to mm. school? I wish in writing this book, I had come up with the answer of how we end bias in the system but I didn't. I don't have an answer to that. I wish I did. Um, but you know, I, I do think that one thing that is really, really important at almost an overly tactical level is that as soon as possible, when you're in these moments, you want to shift as quickly as possible from presentation mode into huddle mode. And you know, what I mean by that is that instead of us really just staring at each other, I think we want to get to the point where we're staring at a problem we're staring at a message, we're staring at an opportunity together. I remember when I took a trip to New York and I was sitting in on a venture capital meeting, you know, it was an investor pitch. And the person who was doing the pitching, the, the founder was an owner of a pizza shop, small local business. And I got to the meeting early. I was there to take notes and I got there early just to kind of set up. And, and, uh, and he was there early and just the nicest person, just so warm uh, had this sort of Brooklyn, you know, accent. And like, he talked to me about his family. His father owned a pizza shop. His grandfather owned a pizza shop. It dated all the way back to like, you know, Italy. It was a tradition in their family. And he was just really charming. And what I found was that as investors started to walk into the room, his demeanor started to change. And I think that it started to change to kind of what he expected they would want him to act like. So he kind of became more businessy because that's what you do around venture capitalists. And, you know, he gives his pitch, but he's not giving it with nearly the level of enthusiasm or fire that you had seen before. But at one point in time, I, I raised my hand and I said, hey, do you have the app on your phone? Could we take a look at it? And he's like, yeah, I do. So he pulls it out and he starts to go to these different screenshots on his phone. And the investors in the room, we all huddle around him. And so now we're kind of looking at around his phone and his demeanor changes again, because now he's sort of showing us something rather than describing something. And I think we just tend to be far more compelling when we're showing than when we're describing. Yeah. Well put. That's the quickest way to make allies out of the people who are in the room with you, right? To collectively focus your energy on yeah. the task at hand, whatever it is. Yeah. So much of what you have learned, you have learned because things have worked out. I remember using Rise before it sold to One Medical. I loved that app. 
Um, and also because things haven't worked out, because you have also become a pro at, at failure and failing elegantly and learning from it over the course of your career. What does failure teach anyone about what it means to inspire people to support you? Most backable people don't start out by being backable. They sort of learn how to do that along the way. You know, and the, the, the first time that I got a taste of this was in 2004, a long time ago. I was a junior, junior, junior level speechwriter working at the Democratic National Convention in Boston. And so I'm backstage and there's, you know, someone back there who's about to speak who I do not recognize. And he's got a yellow notepad and he's about to go up there. I remember asking one of the backstage managers, like, hey, do you, do you know his name? And the backstage manager didn't. He just said, no, I, I don't, but I know he's a state senator from Illinois. So later on that day, he gets up there, the state senator from Illinois, and gives a speech that I think changes everything. I become one of the millions of people in that moment that become obsessed with Barack Obama. And I wanted to learn everything I could about his story. What surprised me the most as I started to look into it was really how the prior four years had unfolded. I mean, in the year 2000, just four years before he gave that speech, he ran for Congress and lost. And he lost by a huge margin. It was a two to one margin. The most surprising thing, though, to me, Jesse, was the feedback that he was getting during that campaign. People thought he was dry, professorial. <laughs> there was a reporter named Ted McClelland who said that Barack Obama is so boring that he sucks the life out of the room. That was his reputation. And then four years later, he is this bastion of inspiration and hope and energy. And it all happened over the course of this four years. How do you go from this point of failure to this destination that you, you'd been trying to reach? And you know, I think in Barack Obama's case, it's clear that he played a lot of exhibition matches. These are practice sessions with friendly people that can really hone your style, that can hone your gift. And I think really in a lot of ways, help you understand who you really are. And these exhibition matches can be played really with anyone. They can be played with friends and family. You know, one of the things I found studying backable people is that we tend to have a circle of people around us, a small group of people that we tend to go to to play these exhibition matches. And I think there are four types of people that I continue to find over and over again. I call them the four C's. So the first C is your collaborator. So this is someone who, you know, when you're with this person, you really feel like you're in a musical jam session with them. They're riffing with you. They're building on top of your ideas. Your second is your coach. And your coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator is really focused on whether your idea fits the market, your coach is someone who really helps you understand if an idea fits you. Your third is your cheerleader. So this is someone who's just going to give you that last bit of confidence you need before you go into a room. So that's the third C. The fourth C is your critic, or what I like to call your cheddar. And the reason I call this person your cheddar is because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile, Eminem is surrounded by a group of friends that are always sort of building him up. But he's got one friend named Cheddar who is constantly poking holes in his ideas, saying, yeah, yeah, but what about that? And we tend to sort of repel away from the cheddars in our lives. We tend to sort of push them away. Kind of annoying sometimes, someone who always poking holes in your ideas. But this is the person that's really going to get you ready. This is the person that's really going to prepare you to be inside the room. So make sure you don't push away the cheddar. <laughs> like that. Like I, I want to take one step back. We exist in a moment where we can see success as a flash. 
But what is more true about the course of a life and a career is that it is nonlinear. What you are aiming for is not the quick success, but the legacy that, Hmm. you know, Sunil, you, you lost your recent race, but that's not your legacy, right? Your legacy is something bigger. How do you think about that? You know, every morning, my daughter and I uh, have this little routine, and I ask her two questions. And the first question I ask her is, what's the meaning of life? And she says to me, to find your gift. And then I say, what is the purpose of life? And she says, to give it away. And we've gone through this routine over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, my father, when he was around my age, had open heart surgery. And I think to myself, like, you know, I think I'm in pretty decent shape and I do the right things, but you never know. And if nothing else, she will have the answers to those two questions. Backable to me, I think, is, is about giving your gift away. And what I've realized is that you know, my mantra now is that the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. Jesse, like you say, like I ran for Congress and I lost. And Rise, while it was, you know, I think it was it was somewhat successful, it wasn't a home run. You know, I, I remember when we sold the company to One Medical, you know, I, I signed that paperwork with with mixed feelings. And the shareholders were pretty happy and I think the team was pretty happy. But, you know, I always I had this sort of feeling in the pit of my stomach that we we could have been more. Like we could have gone the distance. And it wasn't until a few months later that I had this experience that that feeling started to change, which is that I was at a conference and there was another healthcare entrepreneur who was speaking on stage. And, you know, his company was just all the rage in the, at that moment. It was a mental health startup and people were, people were really excited about it. And, you know, I felt that sort of that quick pang of envy where I thought to myself, man, I wish I was up on stage. I wish I was that person. But here I am sitting in the audience. No one even knows I'm here. But we got to Q&A and someone asked him, like, how, tell us more about how you got inspired to build this, this service that you've created. And in his answer, he said, you know, one of, the, one of the things that inspired me was this company called Rise. Now, he didn't even know that I was in the audience, but it was this really just enlightening moment for me because, gosh, you know, again, Rise didn't, it didn't go the distance that I wanted it to go. But it certainly had an impact that will live beyond sort of what it is that we created. Today, I teach. Uh, I spend a lot of time with students. And I always ask them, like, what do you want out of your career? Like, what's the most important thing? And, and typically, you know, number one or number two is something along the lines of impact. I want to know that I made a difference. And I think the thing that I try to keep in mind is that the impact we have on the world isn't always direct. You know, it isn't always through our hands. It's through other people's hands because they watched you do what you do. You know, and even if you put yourself out there and you don't reach the intended destination, you still touch and teach people along the way. That was Sunil Gupta. Check out his new book, Backable. There's so much to learn inside it. And I've invited Sunil to join us for this week's Office Hours. So we'll take your questions and have a chat with you. Join us this Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. You can follow us by following LinkedIn News or email us for the link, as always, at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show was produced by Sarah Storm with help from Madison Schaefer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. 
Florencia Irianda was head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor make us backable every day. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You also heard music from Poddington Bear. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. If Sarah's face appears, we stop what we're doing and listen to her because she makes us sound good. Okay, Um, perfect. (laughs)